Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 259. Today's big Bible question, should our worship of God be solemn and reverent or joyful and exuberant? So happy Friday, everybody. I am podcasting to you from the middle of the apocalypse where the sun has gone dim and pink. The sky is smoky and dangerous to breathe. The earth is on fire. And honestly, I'm just waiting any second for Godzilla to emerge from the Pacific and begin to lay waste to San Jose and San Francisco. Nothing really would surprise me about what happens next in 2020. Our Bible passages for today include 2 Samuel chapter 6, which is our focus passage, plus Psalm 55, Ezekiel 14, and 1 Corinthians 16. Today is 9-11, and we remember the attacks of 9-11. I was asleep when the world changed. As you guys know, I'm not really a morning person at all, but a very definite night owl. My friend Sam called me, or texted me, I don't actually remember, uh, shortly after the first tower was hit, which was around 7.46 a.m. Central Time. I quickly got up, turned on the TV, and went and found my wife, and we watched the attacks unfold, confused and perplexed. Now, I was alive during the last part of the Vietnam War, but only an infant, and I don't remember anything at all about it from that time, of course. Uh, But up until 2020, the 9-11 attacks and their aftermath was probably the biggest news event of my lifetime. But you know what? I believe the pandemic and the upheavals of 2020 have really eclipsed 9-11 and ultimately will be the biggest and most impacting event worldwide since World War II, if it isn't already. We remember 9-11. Carrier Elysium. By the way, I want to begin the show with two bold predictions. Let me be very clear. Not prophecies, not at all. Just want to get down two bold predictions for the record. Prediction number one, there will be a significant earthquake in this vicinity of South America very shortly. Prediction number two, that is again not a prophecy, the 46th president of the United States of America will be neither Joe Biden nor Donald Trump. Well, while predictions aren't the focus of today's podcast, far more importantly, our focus today is on worship, because we're going to see a tremendous example of worship in 2 Samuel chapter 6. So let's read the passage together, and then we're going to discuss today's Bible question. 2 Samuel chapter 6 verse 1, David again assembled all the fit young men in Israel, 30,000. He and all his troops set out to bring the ark of God from Baal, Judah. The ark bears the name, the name of the Lord of armies who is enthroned between the cherubim. They set the ark of God on a new cart and transported it from Abinadab's house, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahilo, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the cart and brought it with the ark of God from Abinadab's house on the hill. Ahio walked in front of the ark. David and the whole house of Israel were dancing before the Lord with all kinds of fur, wood instruments, lyres, harps, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to Nakan's threshing floor, Uzzah reached out to the ark of God and took hold of it because the oxen had stumbled. Then the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah and God struck him dead on the spot for his irreverence and he died there next to the ark of God. David was angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah, so he named that place Perez Uzzah or outbreak against Uzzah as it is today. 
David feared the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? So he was not willing to bring the, bring the ark of the Lord to the city of David. Instead, he diverted it to the house of Obed Edom of Gath. The ark of the Lord remained in his house three months, and the Lord blessed Obed Edom and his whole family. It was reported to King David, The Lord has blessed Obed Edom's family and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and had the ark of God brought up from Obed Edom's house to the city of David with rejoicing. When those carrying the ark of the Lord advanced six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened calf. David was dancing with all his might before the Lord, wearing an e- linen ephod. He and the whole house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of the ram's horn. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Saul's daughter, Michal, looked down from the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent David had pitched for it. Then David offered burnt offerings and fellowship offerings in the Lord's presence. When David had finished offering the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of armies. Then he distributed a loaf of bread, a date cake, and a raisin cake to each one in the entire Israelite community, both men and women. Then all the people went home. When David returned home to bless his household, Saul's daughter Michal came to meet him. How the king of Israel honored himself today, she said. He exposed himself today in the sight of the slave girls of his subjects like a vulgar person would expose himself. David replied to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me over your father and his whole family to appoint me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will dance before the Lord, and I will dishonor myself and humble myself even more. However, by the slave girls you spoke about, I will be honored. And Saul's daughter Michal had no child to the day of her death. So a powerful passage for us today. I want to begin with two notes. Number one, multiple times in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, God himself identifies David as a man after my own heart. This despite the fact that we have already seen that David is a man that frequently falls short of God's commands. And we're going to see that situation get even worse. And yet, even as a great sinner, David was a wholehearted lover of God. And that's important. It's very important. The Bible never commends cold formality and passionless or robotic love and obedience. Number two, principle of life or truth. God is pleased with wholehearted and whole-bodied devotion to him is what we see in this passage. 2 Chronicles 16.9 says, The eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. So that should make us consider, when it comes to worship, are we more of a McCall in worship, questioning what others are doing and maybe even despising them if they get too exuberant? Or are we a David? And I will say here, I'm not talking about form of worship. I'm talking about the heart of worship. So there's two different ways we can spend the rest of our time today discussing worship in the Bible. Uh, For instance, you could bring me a jar of a substance and say, hey, is this sweet? And there's a couple of different ways I can answer that question. Well, I could do the logical and scientific way to answer the question. And I could ask, well, where did you get that jar? 
And if somebody said a bee's nest, well, I could observe that it might be sticky and spreadable and amber-colored. I could take the lid off and watch it crystallize and turn rather solid. I could put it on a Bunsen burner and determine how much caloric energy it has and whether or not it's a carbohydrate. I could put it on toast and see how children react to the taste of it. I could pour it on the ground and see if ants flock to it. So I can think and reason and experiment and finally get to the place where I've eliminated all other possibilities and say, aha, I have scientifically determined that this substance is almost certainly honey and therefore it is sweet. The other approach, though, might be a little simpler and that's just to dip my finger in it and taste it. And that kind of gives us, brings us to two different ways of talking about worship. We can be very theological about it. Aim to give the grounds and philosophy and principles of worship from the scripture. And that's a good thing. Sort of aiming for the head, for the thinking. And, and there's a place for that. The other place we could do is we could sort of aim for the heart. And I think I want to do that a little bit today. I, I want to, yes, talk about scripture, but also aim for my heart and your heart because we want to taste and see that the Lord is good. We want to be people of extravagant worship and more and love more than we want to be people who are, you know, highly educated in the theology of worship. So I want to give you five principles about worship that, again, are aiming more for the heart than the head. Uh, but some of them are, you know, a little bit of both, I guess. Number one principle about worship we see from the scripture. The first two of the Ten Commandments center around worship, as does what Jesus calls the first and greatest commandment, that we must love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Now, number two principle about worship, God is not served by human hands. This is a bit of a contrast here. It's the most important thing we can do, but we don't worship God because he's needy. And because he's sitting up there alone and desiring us and, and needful of attention from humans. The fact is, God is complete. Acts 17 verses 24 and 25 says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Well, principle number three. In a sense, all of life is worship. Worship. Whatever you eat and drink, says the Bible, do it all for the glory of, the God, of God. However, the Bible uses the word worship most often in a significantly more narrow sense than simply describing the way a Christian lives their life. Worship is an all-consuming orientation and expression of the heart and mind and body to glorify God and express love for him and proclaim his worth. That's my definition of worship. In a sense, we can say that everything we do, our worship, our play, etc., is worship. But I think in a greater, more scriptural sense, thinking about worship in that way sort of goes beyond what the Bible says. The way the Bible talks about worship is that worship is intentional. It's focused. And honestly, it requires the cessation of all other activities beyond, you know, basic life support to kind of be a Star Trekky person there. Principle number four about worship. Because the New Testament is stunningly quiet, to borrow a John Piperism, stunningly quiet about worship style, form, and place, we must be incredibly careful when we engage in arguments or disputes about the style of, for, of worship, the form of worship, the length of worship, and the place of worship. 
99% of the squabbles in the church over worship over the past few decades simply boil down to preference, not the clear teaching of the scriptures. Yes, 1 Corinthians 14.40 does say all things should be done decently and in order, but the primary context of that passage is in regards to the exercise of spiritual gifts, which is a significant part of the gathering of believers. But to take that verse and to use it as a sort of a grid to judge which types and forms and styles of worship is acceptable and unacceptable can be quite dangerous. We have to be careful about looking at somebody else's worship, especially when it's passionate and exuberant, and judging it. We want to do all things decently and in order, but we may not know exactly what that means. And somebody worshiping like David with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength and the expression of every muscle in his body might just be a perfect definition of all things being done decently and in order. So I want to warn us, brothers and sisters, we must be exceedingly careful in making judgments about worship style, form, length, location, and selection of songs and style of songs. The fact of the matter is the Bible doesn't command that we worship only in psalms or only in hymns or only in contemporary prayer uh, praise choruses or things like that. The Bible is very stunningly quiet, like Piper says, on those kind of preference issues, and therefore we should really take a Romans 14 position on the same thing. And that brings us to our big Bible question. Should worship be reverent and solemn, or should it be joyful and exuberant? My answer is yes, 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 to all of it. David here gives us a God-pleasing example of joyful, exuberant worship that is most acceptable and pleasing to God. Has God changed? No, I don't believe he has. And I believe that wholehearted and whole-bodied worship of God with dancing, what we see here, is still pleasing to him. Now, what if you were in a church and somebody is air quotes, overdoing it. Allow me to warn you to be careful. McCall thought her husband was overdoing it and she was dangerously wrong. This might be a good place for us to follow Romans 14 and let God judge and handle his own servants and you focus on worshiping God. I truly believe there is no place in worship for somebody being ostentatious and intentionally trying to draw attention to themselves. That's a deadly danger. But it is also dangerous for us to judge the intentions of somebody's heart. The fact of the matter is, somebody dancing before the Lord in an ostentatious, hey, look at me uh, kind of way, and David dancing before the Lord with all his heart and with seeming almost reckless abandon, we can't tell the difference between those two behaviors because we can't see into somebody's heart. God can Now, I've been in ministry for 25, 26 years. I've spent several of those years in both charismatic churches and formal Presbyterian liturgical type churches, and I've seen the deepest of worship from both sides of those things. And, of course, my experience proves nothing, but I can tell you that I see worshiping God with joy and passionate exuberance being acceptable to Him in the Bible and worshiping God with solemn reverence and quiet awe being acceptable to him in the Bible. I think the conclusion is, let's you and I rejoice when we see others worshiping God, whether they are dancing before the Lord with all their might or quietly and passionately and reverently singing a hymn in a wholehearted way. 
We see in Hebrews 12, 28, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. By it we may serve God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And we see in Psalms 46, 10, Be still and know that I am God. Or, as the CSB says, Stop your fighting and know that I am God, exalted among the nations, exalted on the earth. So, how should we worship God? Reverently, quietly, with hymns, with dancing, with exuberance, with joy. I believe all of those things are most acceptable and most good as long as they are wholehearted, biblically accurate expressions of love for God. Finally, number five, principle of worship. Value is critical in understanding worship. Now, as a pastor, I've had people, not at my current church, but in the past, I've had people struggle before with the length of our gatherings. And, you know, I get that. People got things to do, places to be. But I've had people say to me, let's not cut the preaching down, but maybe we could cut the music down a little bit. Now, I'm going to assume that some would want to cut the time of the preaching down as well, but nobody has ever been so impolitic as to say that to my face. Although I would sympathize, I mean, sitting through a long sermon can be difficult some days, sometimes. But the thing is, worship is a value issue. We engage in what we value. Let me give you a little bit of illustration of that. Let's say you're facing a day where you have to spend four hours in line at the DMV to get your license renewed, and you're just miserable about it as anybody would be. So imagine you go there and you're in a terrible mood because you're just wasting all that time in line where you could be doing something you actually enjoy and you get in line and you're grumbling and sad and messed up. And then lo and behold, you look up and somebody is in line directly ahead of you that you value immensely. I don't know. Maybe it's a celebrity. Maybe it's a supermodel. Maybe it's an incredible athlete or a writer. Whatever. Imagine that you're in line at the DMV and your hero is there. And they're bored too. And they want to talk to you because they didn't bring their phone or something, and they're just interested in opening up. Well, your whole demeanor will change. Well, the circumstances haven't changed. You're probably still going to be there for a long time, but the value you place on being in that line has all of a sudden changed. You might even want it to take longer than four hours because this is a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for you to speak deeply with your greatest hero. Now, we must wholeheartedly pursue God in a more than merely religious way because we value Him more than our greatest human hero. Worship is incredibly important because God is incredibly important and he seeks those who would wholeheartedly worship him in spirit and truth. May we be that people who values that practice. May we be like David who danced before the Lord with all his might. We will continue reading in Ezekiel chapter 14 verse 1. Some of the elders of Israel came to me and sat down in front of me. Then the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts and have put their sinful stumbling blocks in front of themselves. Should I actually let them inquire of me? Therefore speak to them and tell them, This is what the Lord God says. When anyone from the house of Israel sets up idols in his heart and puts his sinful stumbling block in front of himself and then comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him appropriately. I will answer him according to his many idols so that I may take hold of the house of Israel by their hearts. They are all estranged from me because of their idols. Therefore say to the house of Israel, this is what the Lord God says. Repent and turn away from your idols. Turn your faces away from all your detestable things. For when anyone from the house of Israel or from the 
Aliens who reside in Israel separates himself from me, setting up idols in his heart and putting his sinful stumbling block in front of himself, and then comes to the prophet to inquire of me, I, the Lord, will answer him myself. I will turn against that one and make him a sign in a proverb. I will cut him off from among my people. Then you will know that I am the Lord. But but if the prophet is deceived and speaks a message, it was I, the Lord, who deceived that prophet. I will stretch out my hand against him and destroy him from among my people Israel. They will bear their punishment. The punishment of the one who inquires will be the same as that of the prophet, in order that the house of Israel may no longer stray from following me and may no longer defile themselves with all of their transgressions. Then they will be my people and I will be their God. This is the declaration of the Lord God. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, suppose a land sins against me by acting faithlessly and I stretch out my hand against it to cut off its supply of bread, to send famine through it, and to wipe out both people and animals from it. Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would rescue only themselves by their righteousness. This is the declaration of the Lord God. Suppose I allow dangerous animals to pass through the land and depopulate it so that it becomes desolate, with no one passing through it for fear of the animals. Even if these three men were in it as I live, the declaration of the Lord God, they would not rescue their sons or daughters. They alone would be rescued, but the land would be desolate. Or suppose I bring a sword against that land and say, let a sword pass through it so that I wipe out both people and animals from it. Even if these three men were in it, as I live, the declaration of the Lord God, they would not, could not rescue their sons or daughters, but they alone would be rescued. Or suppose I send a plague into the land and pour out my wrath on it with bloodshed to wipe out both people and animals from it. Even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, the declaration of the Lord God, they would not could not rescue their son or daughter. They would only rescue themselves by their righteousness. For this is what the Lord God says. How much worse will it be when I send my four devastating judgments against Jerusalem? Sword, famine, dangerous animals, and plague in order to wipe out both people and animals from it. Even so, there will be survivors left in it, sons and daughters who will be brought out. Indeed, they will come out to you and you will observe their conduct and actions. Then you will be consoled about the devastation I have brought on Jerusalem, about all I have brought on it. They will bring you consolation when you see their conduct and actions, and you will know that it was not without cause that I have done what I did to it. This is the declaration of the Lord God. Psalm 55 verse 1. God, listen to my prayer and do not hide from my plea for help. Pay attention to me and answer me. I am restless and in turmoil with my complaint. Because of the enemy's words, because of the pressure of the wicked, for they bring down disaster on me and harass me in anger. My heart shudders within me. Terrors of death sweep over me. Fear and trembling grip me. Horror has overwhelmed me. I said if I only had wings like a dove, I would fly away and find rest. How far away I would flee. I would stay in the wilderness. Selah. I would hurry to my shelter from the raging wind and the storm. Lord, confuse and confound their speech, for I see violence and strife in the city. Day and night they make the rounds on its walls. Crime and trouble are within it. Destruction is inside it. Oppression and deceit never leave its marketplace. Now, it is not an enemy who insults me, otherwise I could bear it. 
It is not a foe who rises up against me, otherwise I could hide from him. But it is you, a man who is my peer, my companion, and good friend. We used to have close friendship. We walked with the crowd into the house of God. Let death take them by surprise. Let them go down to shale alive, because evil is in their homes and within them. But I call to God, and the Lord will save me. I complain and groan, morning, noon, and night, and he hears my voice. Though many are against me, he will redeem me from my battle unharmed. God, the one enthroned from long ago, will hear and will humiliate them, Selah, because they do not change and do not fear God. My friend acts violently against those at peace with him. He violates his covenant. His buttery words are smooth, but war is in his heart. His words are softer than oil, but they are drawn swords. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. God, you will bring them down to the pit of destruction. Men of bloodshed and treachery will not live out half their days, but I will trust in you. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1. Now about the collection for the saints, do the same as I instructed the Galatian churches. On the first day of the week, each of you is to set something aside and save it, and save in keeping with how he is prospering, so that no collections will need to be made when I come. When I arrive, I will send with letters those you recommend to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it is suitable for me to go as well, they will travel with me. I will come to you after I pass through Macedonia, for I will be traveling through Macedonia, and perhaps I will remain with you or even spend the winter, so that you may may send me on my way whenever I go." I don't want to see you now just in passing since I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord allows. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost because a wide door for effective ministry is open for me, yet many oppose me. If Timothy comes, see that he has nothing to fear while with you because he is doing the Lord's work just as I am. So let no one look down on him. Send him on his way in peace so that he can come to me because I am expecting him with the brothers." Now, about our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brothers, but he was not at all willing to come now. However, he will come when he has an opportunity. Be alert, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, do everything in love. Brothers and sisters, you know the household of Stephanus. They are the first fruits of Achaia and have devoted themselves to the saints. I urge you to submit to such people and to everyone who works and labors with them. I am delighted to have Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus present, because these men have made up for your absence, for they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, recognize such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla send you greetings warmly in the Lord, along with the church that meets in their home. All the brothers and sisters send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. This greeting is in my own hand, Paul. If anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him. Our Lord, come, Maranatha. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. Good day, friends, and Godspeed.